Welcome back to the Zizek and Son podcast. Today we're speaking both with Mikey Downs and Dave McCarragher about Zizek, Lacan and Hegel. You can check out Dave's new institute, The Theory Underground, which is currently providing courses on the PMC, the idea of the university, and Zizek's For They Know, Not What They Do, enjoyment as a political factor which is being taught by Mikey starting on the 25th of February, 2023. You can get all the info for that in the episode notes. Please support us on Patreon to get access to all our other episodes. And other than that, I'll hand you over to Mikey and Dave. Bye-bye. I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Michael Downs. I'm the author of the Dangerous Maybe blog on Medium. The blog primarily focuses on Lacan and Zizek, there's some Baudrillard, there's Deleuze and Guattari, but my work right now primarily focuses on Lacan and Zizek. I'm always trying to approach these thinkers in a way, like I I have to find a way to make them make sense to me. My principle has always been, if I can't explain it to the guys I grew up with while we're having beers at the pub, then I don't know it. It's just that I have to get the concepts to this point where I can basically explain them to anybody for me to be able to understand them. If I don't know them like that, then I don't, I myself don't get it. So that's what the blog has always been about. And now I'm currently, I'm, I've got three books I'm writing, a couple different collections of writings I'm doing too. And I'm getting ready to teach my first course on Zizek for they know not what they do through Dave's Institute called Theory Underground. And Dave? Cool, yeah. Well, I'm David McCarricker, but my friends call me Dave. I used to go by Theory Plebe online. People still call me Plebe as like a nickname because it's fun. Uh, it's spelled with two E's in a row, though, because it's, you know, to spell it correctly is to spell it incorrectly. That was kind of the joke in the first place. But now it's theory underground and Mikey's been teaching me about Zizek's theory of ideology. He's taught me about look, a lot of Lacanian psychoanalytic theory. And I like what I get from Mikey, but when other people talk about this stuff, I just don't know what they're talking about. He's kind of the only person I, I think I'm able to like usually make sense. Oh, okay. Now it finally makes sense. And then after we have our conversation, like a couple of days later, I'm like, what did we talk about? Dave and I, we've been friends for a long time now. And over the last couple of years, we've had an ongoing series of discussions on his channel about Lacan and Zizek. And so you've got what I'm doing on the Dangerous Maybe blog. You've got my discussions with Dave. And now you've got both of us teaching through Theory Underground. I'm teaching the Zizek course. Dave's currently teaching on a course on PMC and PMC theory. That, that's that's about it. Like teaching theory and writing theory as underground theorists, as we call ourselves. I you know I don't have any degrees or anything. I I didn't graduate from high school, honestly. Uh, I did get a GD, but we're both working class theorists or underground theorists, however you want to talk about it. You know, we're we're gearing up for this before they know not what they do course because of the course that you you guys held with Matthew Flissvader and in the sense of that's what got me really focused on for they know not what they do for a, I've been you know reading and studying Zizek for years and I feel embarrassed to admit this now but <clears throat> for they know not what they do was a book that I really kind of put on the back burner I'd read parts of it or a chapter here or there but the the course you hosted really got me to take the time to read that text and it became very apparent to me through that period that this is one of Zizek's best books. And I mean, as far as like his early books go, it's hard to beat this as far as him just really breaking down his theory in a very concentrated way. And so that 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 was the I mean, the 
it, it sounds like a simple takeaway from the course, but it's it's a big takeaway, which was this is a serious philosophical work that Zizek wrote. And books like Sublime Object or Less Than Nothing or Tickler Subject shouldn't eclipse this one. This one should be held up there with his very best. And the course through Theory Underground is really our way of continuing to struggle with this work in in the best of ways that that's what we're we're going for with it okay so why do i love zizek's work well i'd already been into marxism and i'd studied some baudrillard and so i i was already really interested in ideology and when i started seeing the the youtube videos of him i i just immediately latched onto him i'm like i don't know who this guy is or where he came from but i want to know what he's talking about and of course his personality i mean you see someone like derrida he's so fucking suave and like a french intellectual and everything and then you got slavoy you know doing his jokes and zizek did not come off the way that a deleuze or Derrida, right? Like how they came off. And then I've always been interested in everyday philosophy. I mean, that goes back to like, okay, for me to understand Plato or even Descartes, I had to find some way to make it click to my life world to talk like Husserl, right? I How do I connect it to my life world? And that that's always been a focus of mine. I mean, even early on, I was like, well, whatever philosophy is, I want it to make sense of what's going on around me. So Slavoj's really good at that. And I had never seen a philosopher reference pop culture or all of that. I've always been a huge cinephile. So all of the movie examples and all of that, like I lived in a video store as a kid. Like I just watched every movie I could. And so that that made him naturally kind of click with my my taste and my sensibilities. But what really got me hooked on him and, and i don't know like i i just consider this kind of a gift is that i sensed in him a really great serious thinker and he wasn't a clown to me i mean yeah i mean i like the jokes and i i loved his personality but early on i just was like this dude is tapped into some shit that i've been looking for that i didn't i i i didn't know what i wanted but this guy has got it with this lacan shit and now, the Hegel stuff, I didn't click with as much at first. I had read Hegel during those years where I was studying on my own. I'd read Phenomenology of Spirit. That was it. And I read it poorly. And unlike Kant and Sartre and those other guys who I eventually was able to make click, I never really got what Hegel was doing. I, I had an idea, like, I spent a lot of time in the consciousness and self-consciousness that's if you're reading phenomenology you usually get stuck there but once you hit reason most people give up right and for the most part i did and i just was like okay i mean the master slave dialectic seems cool and i know that's influenced a lot of people and so even with even when i got into zizek it was really the lacan stuff that resonated with me and he made me go okay i this lacan guy i should have been paying attention to him if this is what Freud was doing or laying the foundation for that I was wrong about Freud. I need to go back and learn some Freud. And so it was that Lacanian dimension of Slavoj that really resonated with me. Now the, the Hegelian stuff is more and more resonating with me, but it, it, it honestly, it took Todd to really kind of get me tapped into that stuff too. And that's why I've learned Zizek's best early analysis of Hegel is for they know not what they do, right? I mean, sublime object is primarily Lacanian, especially the first half of it. But okay, so to bring it back to the, the main point, it's really his approach to how he could take these psychoanalytic concepts and apply them to politics, to everyday experience, to uh, films that I loved, and making philosophy connect to the world in a way that I almost, I, I very few have done that, or, or if any, and that that's to me one of his, going to be one of his long-lasting impacts is like, and of course, you know, he's got his books on opera, and he, he loves 
the highest levels of culture, right? Beethoven and all that. But he also loves you know, David Lynch and, uh, you know, uh, he'll do an analysis of Kung Fu Panda and all this. So that was that was what I was really looking for was somebody who could connect the highest levels of philosophy to the world. And for my money, I don't think anybody's done it better than he has so far. And I mean, just to piggyback off of that, I mean, that, I mean, that's, that's one of the main things that got me hooked on Zizek's work early is this idea that ideology is, is twofold. It has a layer of meaning to it, but it also has this layer of jouissance. And if you don't understand how enjoyment is a political factor or an ideological factor, you're not getting what's going on in how systems, whether we systems of power or the capitalist system, how that controls and manipulates us. It's not just at the level of false consciousness or bad concepts or however we want to talk about it. We stay hooked on our own oppression, exploitation, etc., based on the way the system offers us enjoyment. And and it's very elaborate. There's all it's it's not like, oh, there's a simple way it offers you enjoyment and that's it. No, it's incredibly rich. It's an incredibly multifaceted thing. And so many there's so many different ways to enjoy capitalism, for example, um from shopping to entertainment through even wage labor in various ways right there's all these different ways that we get jouissance from the situation and that's the real hook for for us that's what keeps us glued to it if it was just at this level of misunderstanding that i mean that would be so easy to to have a kind of standard workers revolution if all it takes is pointing out the facts and getting clear on the concepts and developing that well then the revolution would have happened a long time ago i mean this is i mean todd makes this point great in capitalism and desire like our enjoyment is not repressed like capitalism bombards us with it it's this super egoic duty like you have to enjoy your whole life is shit and worthless if you're not enjoying yourself and so the system is constantly bombarding us with that in a multitude of ways and because we have a duty to enjoy and because the system offers us so many avenues to it this is where the complexity of ideology comes into play and it's not just at the level of meaning it's at this libidinal level that i mean it goes into our very central nervous system right like that's the trick is to understand like you might hate capitalism but you're central nervous system doesn't right and so Slavoj is the one who really connected these dots and it's important because because Zizek is not great at one thing he's not great at taking credit for his own work for his own insights and for his own ideas he always seems to be giving credit to Hegel or to Lacan and so I mean the very fact that Zizek I mean one of his concepts is inherent transgression it's not Lacan's Lacan didn't come up with it it's Slavoj's and I mean the basic idea is that it, it comes from the way he even conceptualizes law right the law has three layers to I mean we could talk about two layers or three but it, it, I think it's better to think in terms of three when it comes to Slavoj's idea of the law and what we have is we have the explicit rules of a society it, you know it's what the it's the public facing law it's the official values of a society and then you have these little intrinsic rules, the, the, these ways of bending the official rules, right? Um, these ways of getting around them. But then if that's the level of meaning, right, you also have this obscene supplement he talks about, or he also calls it the superego or whatever. And so if the big other, which is to say the big other is kind of, I always connect it to Heidegger's concept of Dasman, which is translated as the one or the they. And Heidegger always, he talks about this kind of generic self, right? Um, whenever we say we're just doing what one does, well, you know what they say, 
right? Well, the they who, who says what they say, it's not a concrete group of people. It's an abstract virtual big other in the Lacanian sense. It's the generic social self, right? Um, and when you say, well, you're doing what one does, that's just another way of saying you're doing what the big other does, not what little others do. Little others do what the big other does. I mean, it's funny. I mean, if we put it in more concrete terms, the big other is the big normie, right? It's the big, it's the big autonomous system of values, rules, mandates that organize a social order, organize a community. But, and here's the thing, right? So Heidegger saw that. And Kierkegaard, I mean, this Kierkegaard had this concept of publicness. And so Heidegger's drawing on Kierkegaard. But what they're basically getting at in a less developed form is this, this Lacanian big other, this generic, autonomous, virtual person that's not a person. It's not actually God. You can almost think God is the reification of the big other. It's where you substantialize the big other and turn the big other into a living, breathing person, right? And, but what, what Zizek sees, and I mean, this goes back to Freud and, and then Lacan develops it, but the superego in, in my opinion is really more Slavoj's original concept than it even is Freud's or even Lacan. And I mean, Freud for him, he, He's on the right track, but then he doesn't he doesn't get it quite right. Uh, and I think this is true with a lot of what Freud was. Freud was so original, such an innovator when it come it came to developing concepts. Sometimes he didn't know what he had, like like death drive. It's like, well, is it actually a uh, am I really trying to bring about my a return to my inanimate state? Like, am I really trying to die? Well, Lacan's like, no, that's not really what it is. You're trying to get jouissance, which is a kind of living death and or being undead, right? Okay. Point is, though, Slavoj takes this idea of the superego and, and really fleshes it out and makes it his own. And he sees it as this corresponding thing, yet it's it corresponds to, but is in a kind of antagonism with the big other. So you have generic social authority, which is the big other, and that has to do with our ex explicit rules, our official rules, and also like the implicit rules at work in a society. But what keeps us invested in that level of meaning is the social forms in which we break the rules. And that's why he calls it inherent transgression. Another way to say it, it's built-in transgression. And so it, it, it's tricky, right? It, like, well, if you're transgressing, it can't be part of the law. But Slavoj's insight is like, no. There's transgressions that are built into the law and you go, well, what, why does that work? And why is that essential for the reproduction of that law? It's because what it does, it gives us an ideological space of freedom because we're breaking the rules or being excessive, right? In certain ways, I'm not completely the slave of the law. I have freedom and autonomy. I, 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 I do what I want. Right. Yeah. I go to rock concerts, smoke pot. I drink a bunch of IPAs every night. I fucking go to concerts and like hit people in the fucking face. You know, like I, I get down in the pit and I just go crazy. What you can't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. You know, exactly. the just like, cool. You want the shirt for it? You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and that's the trick, right? These spaces of inherent transgression are spaces where there is a kind of excessive, obscene enjoyment going on but it's an obscene enjoyment that helps repro reproduce the status quo that helps reproduce the social order instead of actually threatens it now death drive on the other hand like the idea of us all following the death drive would be an actual breakdown in social order or would at least require the social order to reconfigure itself because it would be a type of enjoyment it couldn't integrate within itself right but um wait, wait. But, yeah. but all of us at the level of our individual abnormal economy, we're all hooked into through our death, through our death drive into these forms of inherent transgression. Well, and this is where, okay, it gets a little bit tricky because, and I think Todd is really right here. And he's the one who's kind of come along and made this further distinction where we kind of do have to d differentiate between super egoic jouissance and the jouissance of death drive. 
because there, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to, I mean, you start thinking about it. Yeah. There's forms of excessive enjoyment that a society can integrate and, you know, it helps maintain that order. And then there's other ways we could enjoy ourselves that a society couldn't, couldn't actually sustain. And the idea is that our super egoic enjoyment, despite its excess, despite its obscenity, it does help reproduce our social standing, our social membership, our social identity. Whereas death drive are, are moments where we're really striking at our social identity. You know, like yeah. Michael Clayton is a, a, a favorite of Todd's where at the end of the film, Michael Clayton just has to make a choice and he chooses to essentially get revenge on the big corporations cover up or whatever it is. But this entails him losing his social status, losing his job, losing his way of supporting himself. He has to totally sacrifice his social identity. That death drive is what enables him to actually free himself. It's this enjoyment he gets from destroying his social identity and being willing to, yeah. willing to perform the act that will destroy his social identity that frees him from it. Opposed to superego, which wants you to uh, enjoy in ways that reproduces your social identity. So, for example, Zizek's great example of inherent transgression in the American South. If you really wanted to be a full member of white society, uh, you, you were participating in lynchings or beatings or KKK, right? And that was like this obscene night law of racism and violence and all of that. And yet, and, and you weren't really supposed to talk about it out in the open. You have to keep it hidden, right? It's, it's that form of enjoyment that makes you a member of that racist society. And at the same time, you're not really supposed to acknowledge it, right? That's how inherent transgression often works. And yeah, at the point is, if you didn't partake in that form of enjoyment, you weren't really part of the member of the group. And so it's super egoic enjoyment often is what sustains an identity opposed to destroy it. And I mean, so I, I just put out a new blog post called uh, Wage Labor and Jouissance. And part of what I'm doing there is I'm kind of doing a first person thing where I'm talking about my experiences at my different jobs. And I'm talking about how inherent transgression functions differently in different types of jobs. But for example, like the, at the old, uh, the, the bar I used to be a bouncer at after close, everybody would start making fun of the various customers that annoyed them throughout the night and just being completely heartless and brutal. And it was this kind of obscene ritual that now, of course, you think this bar would publicly say, hey, by the way, after we close, we're going to just totally make fun of you and be viciously cruel in how we humiliate you to ourselves. It could never publicly acknowledge that. But if you're to be part of that group, to be part of that staff, you had to be willing to partake of that form of enjoyment to get your hands dirty in order to be really part of the in crowd, the inner circle. And I, I've just, I find this, any job I've ever had, I've always seen this same logic played out in very different ways. But it's a super egoic, excessive thing that reproduces that social order and doesn't destroy it, like in the way that Death Drive would. It's also that it's the obscene supplement to the law, right? Mm -hmm. So something like the Dirty Harry films with Clint Eastwood, the enjoyment that you get out of those films is that there is a limit to the law and it requires this person to transgress it. The cops can only do so much. And the fantasy is that there's a man who will take it on himself to transgress it. One of the fundamental things that we're engaged in here is one, it's the push that we feel to transgress. And the other mm -hmm. is that we are rewarded for this obscene transgression. It's the underside of the law. Each instantiation of the law generates its own set of transgressions. And the idea is that you're pushed to one enact them, but the other is the part that nobody says out loud is that's where the enjoyment lies. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, this is what perversion is, right? What the pervert does is prop up the law through horrendous forms of transgression because 
it's like what you're saying with dirty hair. It's like, I care about the law so much that I'm willing to transgress it for it. Right. But there's, I mean, there's also a phallic dimension here of like the, the exceptional one, the man who like the primal father in Freud's myth, um, it's, it's either it's see, and this is what's cool about psychoanalysis. You start to see a different libidinal dynamic. So is he exceptional because he totally disregards the law and becomes a law unto himself? Or does he transgress the law in the service of that law, trying to prop up the law? And so mm-hmm. you get different dynamics based on the, the his own subject. I mean, the primal father would go, there is no fucking law. I'm the law. But Dirty Harry wouldn't say that. He'd say, I'm doing this because the law must be with uh, upheld. Right. Yeah, he and, fills he fills in the gaps of the law. So the yeah. the the ultimate scene in the original Dirty Harry is they're out on a football field at night. Stop! And the stadium lights are cast on the grass, and Dirty Harry is there. And there's this moment where he is going to be judge and executioner. Go on out and get some air, fatso. And the camera is directly on Dirty Harry and the bad guy. And in this amazing shot, it hurriedly escapes the oval itself up out into the sky. It's this moment of the retreat of the gaze because you are fully confronted with your desire as the spectator. You want Dirty Harry to do the job, the dirty work, this underside to the law that you are willing to ignore in normal life, in everyday reality, yet you know, you act as if. The girl, where is she? She tried to kill me! If I tried that, your head would be splattered all over this field. Now, where's the girl? I want I said, where's the girl? I have the right for a lion. Where's the girl? I have the right for a lion. No, and I mean, and that's great. I I love this idea of what I mean. It's super egoic, right? Like I, I, the law has is is a matrix. It's a code that establishes a whole system of rules and expectations on your behavior. But of course, it can't cover everything, and so when when something goes wrong and there's a failure i'll be right there to fill in that void right in a weird way you almost see god in the old testament fulfilling both roles he's this calm collective caring lawgiver he's trying to establish rules that would benefit the whole community and yet when there's a gap when people do something and they don't obey or whatever then this super egoic god comes out and he's a god of vengeance and i'll just fuck your whole shit up So the other the other word or term I think that people get confused a lot that ties right in with what you're probably saying I think is the subject, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's getting used by people who are using it right now, like mm-hmm. it means just like this focus on individualism or identity, mm-hmm. and I know that it's like the opposite with Lacan, and this created confusion at Salvation Media recently, right? We talked about this, and so. I was wondering, yeah, Mikey, uh, maybe we should wait for a second until he gets the beer. Maybe it starts with a certain ironic, but the point is that the indirect message is that I'm not my particularity. And if I'm not my particularity, that means I'm the same as you. There's a universal dimension to all of us that is the same that Trump, it's funny, I don't even use the word Trump anymore, but it trumps our particularity. In, in its universal identification. And so Slavoj, along with Badu, is known for a reassertion of the concept of the subject. And during this era, I don't even like talking about postmodernism and post-structuralism. I think those terms bring more confusion than anything. So instead of saying that, in this era of thinkers like Derrida and Foucault, and even Deleuze, and you could even argue Baudrillard to some degree, you have thinkers who are opposed in various ways to the concept of the subject. 
And the subject traditionally is thought of as that autonomous agency within a person. It is the, the part of the person that is capable of free will, capable of introspection, capable of knowing itself. And this almost fixation, but this emphasis on the subject in philosophy really begins with Descartes in Meditations on First Philosophy. And what he does in the first and second meditations is he he's able to arrive at pure subjectivity, what he would call the, the cogito, the I, right? And he does this through a method of, of skepticism or methodological doubt. And what he starts doing is he goes, okay, I, I want to arrive at something that I can't doubt. Because if I can arrive at something I can't doubt, well, then I've got a foundation, not only epistemologically, but also ontologically. Now, some people would say, well, is it real? Is he going for ontology or epistemology? But I think if you know the thing for certain, then it's you're doing ontology and epistemology at the same time. At least that's my take on it. Point is, he can doubt that he his body is real because that could be an illusion. He can doubt the validity of all the values he was taught. He can doubt all this stuff. But what he ends up arriving at is, but I have, to, I might be deceived about everything I've ever been taught or everything I think I've ever known. But if I am deceived, I have to exist. I can't be deceived if I don't exist. And so I exist, but I exist as a pure I not as my particular content, not my body, not my ethnicity, not, you know, my, my history. Like I am a pure subject, but the key is at least early on in the meditations is that it's really a nothing like, okay. It's not any positive features because I can, I can doubt those, right. I can doubt that I'm my body or whatever. And the thing is, Descartes goes on in the following meditations, and he positivizes this, this pure self that he's found, and he turns it into a positive substance called re cogitans. And so this is a substantialization, a positivization of the self. And it, he basically comes up with a soul, right? And this is, this is at the heart of his dualism, because through his rationalism, through his chain of arguments, he brings in God. And if God is the way he is, then he has to actually be good based on his concepts. So God wouldn't allow me to be deceived about everything. And so I do have a body, but I'm also not reducible to that body because I've already established that I'm a thinking thing. And so this brings in his dualism. Okay, well, that's Descartes. Then you get to Kant and Kant starts thinking about this thing called the transcendental unity of apperception. What that means is it's even a more formal concept of the self or the I. And what it is, it's it's this thing in our mental faculty that combines all of our experiences. It's like stamping them and going, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And it's organizing them into a cohesive unity as the experience of this subject, right? And so... The subject for him, it's not a thing, it's not a positive substance, but it is a formal mechanism that we must presuppose in order to account for our concrete experience. So it's a transcendental, not an empirical subject. Now, he does think, of course, we have our psychological empirical side. Yeah, I've got a body and I have emotions and all of that. But he's saying that empirical subject, which is what we just take ourselves to be, is structured by a transcendental subject, which is to say a type of subjectivity that serves as the condition of possibility. It's what makes possible our empirical selves, right? And if we took this formal mechanism out of the equation, we couldn't even have our normal sense of ourselves, right? Okay, so Kant takes on this formal I, which is different because he doesn't substantialize it. He doesn't turn it into a thing like Descartes did. But then you have these other things. I mean, you get Sartre and he's he's working with this because he comes up with the for itself and it's the in itself, which is a kind of Cartesian dualism. But he also doesn't want to do that type of Cartesian dualism. And then you get Heidegger and he's trying to do something 
drastically different in Heidegger's teacher, Edmund Husserl. He was very Kantian because he wants to talk about the transcendental ego. And as a phenomenologist, he sees this as organizing experience in a way very similar to Kant. But Heidegger is going to reject that and go, no, it's not a transcendental subject. It's Dasein or what I mean, for the sake of clarity, Dasein is not a self in this way we've been talking about the self from Descartes on. But it also is referring to us as human beings. Right. But he wants to call it something different because he doesn't want the baggage that he thinks is attached to the concept of the subject to be brought into what he's doing. Point is, you have this whole line of thinkers that are thinking what it is to be a subject or at least what it is to be a human being, right? Well, along the same area, we get Freud. And what Freud's discovery is, there is a subject in a sense, but it's not the subject that the subject thinks it is. So the point is, it's almost similar to Kant because Kant has this transcendental unity of apperception and then he has the empirical self. Well, for Freud, that empirical self would be what he calls the ego. But Freud finds this split in subjectivity too, but it's between the unconscious and the ego. And so you can say that Kant found this split first, but the point is for him, the transcendental side and the empirical side of the subject kind of work together. There's not a contradiction or a friction or antagonism between them. They're both a kind of synthesis or organization of the experiencing subject, right? What Freud's great discovery is, the subject is split, but it stands in contradiction to itself. One side is, in a sense, undermining the other, right? And with that, you get this Lacanian line that takes this further and the unconscious becomes the subject, right? And then Zizek takes it and does his thing with it. Now that brings us up to where we're at with Zizek. And here's what we, we end up getting is that there's this split between our identity and our subjectivity. And our identity is comprised of what us Lacanians like to call our imaginary symbolic coordinates. Now that seems less helpful than about anything I could say. Um, but the point is, look, the imaginary coordinates, as we call them, it has to do with all of the, the images about ourselves that we identify as. So the primary image that I identify as is my physical body. I know when we talk about images, we think like paintings, right? But And paintings are images, right? They're part of the imaginary in the Lacanian sense. But what the imaginary really means for Lacan is the field of visible imagery of perceptions it's the field of perceptions but it's also the field of fantasy insofar as fantasy or imagination also involves images and so the imaginary is comprised of perceptions and fantasies right anything that is imagery in any type of phantasmatic or perceptual sense and there's aspects of our imaginary field or our perceptional field that we identify as i identify with my hand that i'm looking at more than i do my computer but, and here's the trick, right? There's also a sense in which I even identify with my computer because I use my computer to write or to have conversations like this. And so this computer is more me than somebody else's computer. Like you get into the whole idea of property and then you get into this idea that we associate with certain things because they give us a certain identity. You know, I want to more identify with a copy of a book by Slavoj Žižek than a book by Paris Hilton, right? There's these imaginary things that we identify with in the sense of there are images that we identify with that we say are more us than others. And so our imaginary coordinates are just those. It's the perceptual phantasmatic imagery that we say is me. But the trick of the imaginary for Lacan is, of course, none of this is actually me. For him, the, the actual subject is not reducible to any of this perceptual content right? And okay, so that's the imaginary. The symbolic, it's all of our social positions. If you say I'm a teacher, if you say I'm a police officer, if you say I'm a warehouse worker, these are all social positions. And you don't really, I mean, okay, you might associate like a fluorescent vest that we wear in the warehouse. You might associate that with warehouse workers. And that would be some kind of like imaginary content 
of what it is to be a warehouse worker, but the actual symbolic role of being a warehouse worker is not anything perceptual. It's a position or a function within the social order of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And we all have this. So you're born to so-and-so parents and that puts you in a class position and that puts you in a certain ethnicity and it's all these symbolic things. And yeah, they might have an imaginary aspect to them, but the point is that there are signifiers or social positions that are invisible and yet nevertheless define your place within society, right? Okay, so if identity is comprised of these imaginary and symbolic coordinates, then subjectivity is that part of ourselves that is not reducible to them. It's an excess. But the point is, it's a pure nothingness. It's not a thing. It's not like some spiritual substance. And and look, I'm going to talk about it in a way that even Zizek and McGowan don't, but I think it's, it's the only way to get a listener hearing us have this conversation to think like when you tell a, a, a young consciousness that it has to identify with things that it's not that not becomes part of it as a subjective being and it's like okay i'm identifying with this but i'm not really this and that part of consciousness which it really becomes unconscious like you're not really aware that you are this split right oftentimes we totally identify with our particularity right but there's these moments like we were talking about earlier with this this functioning of jokes or self-deprecating, right? When, when we're self-humiliating, you're sacrificing that and you're saying, I am a pure subject. Now, here's the thing, right? This is why Zizek even reasserts the Cartesian subject, right? He In, in Tickler's subject, he, he talks about there's a specter haunting Western academia, the, the specter of the Cartesian subject. And he does. He reaffirms Descartes. But the thing is, He only affirms Cartesian subjectivity as Descartes develops it in the first couple of meditations. He doesn't think you're going to substantialize it. It's not a thing. It is this moment of total nothingness. I am not any of these imaginary images. I am none of these signifiers. I am not reducible to this. And this negative subject is the subject of the real, right? And it's because no matter how ideology works on us, no matter how it interpolates us, no matter what kind of mandate or social duty it imposes on us, we can never perfectly identify with that. And because of that, ideology can never fully have its hold on us. Absolutely. This is the difference between Althusser and Zizek on interpolation. For Althusser, you are just strictly reducible to your ideological identity, to your interpolated, quote, subjectivity, right? Whereas for Zizek, interpolation always produces a leftover that isn't reducible to that identity and therefore can always mess up that identity, right? So ideological interpolation in the strictest sense for Zizek always involves a certain failure, that it can't perfectly turn us into automatons that are reducible to our social identities. There's always this remainder of us being able to go, yeah, yeah, I'm that, but not absolutely and i can disassociate that and free myself from that because i'm not reducible to it and then what are your thoughts on slavoj zizek's work well that what you're referring to is what's called theory and the reason when i said i'm not interested in theory what i meant is i'm not interested in posturing uh, using fancy terms like uh, polysyllables and uh, pretending that theory when you have no theory whatsoever. So there's no theory in any of this stuff, not in the sense of theory that uh, anyone's familiar with in the, the sciences or, or any other serious field. Uh, try to find in all of the work you mentioned some principles uh, from which you can deduce conclusions uh, that yield uh, empirically testable propositions uh, where it all goes beyond the level of uh, you know, something you can explain in five minutes to a 12-year-old. See if you can find that when the, when the fancy words are decoded. I can't, so I'm not interested in that kind of posturing. This is an extreme example of it. So, Michael, to answer your question, 
Okay, what do I think is the most misunderstood concept in Zizek's thought? Zizek's thought as a whole. I'm so glad Dave was here because I would not have gone into the whole thing with jouissance and pleasure and then <laughs> subjectivity. I would have just given you this one and it's not as good as what Dave, that's why I need Dave here to hystericize me, right? I don't think most people, even in theory, really understand either of those concepts because they're not really tapped into what his theory is doing at all. The great misunderstanding of Zizek is not one of his particular concepts. It's his work as a whole. They write it off as some sort of like comical anecdotes or vignettes talking about society or movies or whatever. And just like Chomsky, the, they basically walk away going, oh, you know, he talks about pop culture stuff, but there's no theory there. That's the real misunderstanding. To me, Slavoj is one of the greatest philosophers that has ever lived. I think he'll be remembered for that. It'll, it's going to take a long time after he dies for this to click for different generations of thinkers. But Slavoj's longest lasting contribution is not even going to be his theory of ideology. It's going to be his reading of Hegel. And, and this will be long debated. Is Zizek's Hegelian ontology more Zizek than Hegel? And I kind of think it's Hegel. I really do. I'll make the, the bold claim. I think he's the first philosopher who really got Hegel right. I think Hegel is the most misunderstood philosopher in the history of philosophy. And that in a lot of ways, anything pre-Zizek, you can toss that shit in the trash. Because <laughs> I don't care. Like, I've got a shitload of Hegel books sitting there over there on my shelf. I read a bunch of them when I was trying to understand Hegel, and they're dog shit. They don't know what that dude was up to. And I, somehow, Zizek cracked this code. And then McGowan's cracked it because of Zizek, and he's furthering it. And it's this whole tradition that Zizek has opened up. That's his contribution, is Hegelian ontology. I mean, before they know what they do, is like where he's like, okay, this is the proper interpretation. Everyone else is wrong. Example, 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 example. And he's using like Derrida and Wittgenstein and all these people who think that they've corrected Hegel or the Hegel was wrong or whatever. And he just shows how like they're Hegelian at their best moments and they don't even realize it because they they went with this Fichtean synthesis dialectic. Well, they compromise it because they don't figure that like the, they need to take one more step to be Hegelian. Like I'll give you the, one of the best examples in the book is where Slavoj is critiquing Derrida. And deconstruction. Yeah. And so throughout the metaphysical tradition, starting from Plato, I mean, we could even maybe say the pre-Socratics, but at least from Plato and Aristotle on up, what you have is some kind of substance ontology. Whether for Plato, you have pure identities, pure forms, pure beauty, pure goodness, right? You have these pure essences that are what they are in and of themselves without any relationship to anything else, right? Well, and then Aristotle's going to take this thinking and he's going to turn every concrete thing into a substance that is independent from everything else. And it is what it is in and of itself as an individual substance. And this fucking substance ontology shit is just going to run all the way up, even to Descartes. He's even still caught in it. And that's his whole problem with dualism. He turns mind or subject into an ontological positive substance. But then he turns matter into a positive ontological substance, and yet they're totally different. Well, how the fuck do they interact if they're totally independent from one another? Like if I'm in a body and I'm a mind, and my mind, I know that if my body gets hurt, it totally affects my mind. How the fuck is that possible if you're you're doing this Aristotelian substance ontology shit, right? And this is this whole thing with substance and. This idea of substance is tied up with how we think about identity. Identity is the identity of a thing with itself, right? A pure, independent identity that doesn't have anything to do. And of course, I mean, this tradition will say, yeah, there are relations between things like relations of contrast or whatever. So it knows that on some level, a thing can be thought of as opposed to another thing. But they say those are inessential characteristics or inessential qualities. So what you're really doing, you have a, a metaphysics that thinks in terms of pure identities or and pure substances, right? And so 
if you get locked into that, Dairy Doc can come along and go, well, hold on, hold on. Because when you think about it, at the level of meaning, what does tree mean by itself as an isolated sign? It doesn't mean anything. This is Saussure's influence on Derrida. What Saussure figured out is like, no, in language or in sign systems, a sign only means what it means in relation to its differences between itself and other signs. And so tree doesn't mean anything unless you start going, well, a tree is bark, plant, leaves, fruit, ground. So like you have to bring in all of these different terms to give any kind of identity to the or meaning to the word tree. And so this type of differential logic, Derrida takes it and just starts undermining identity every chance he gets. One of his famous examples is from of grammatology. And Rousseau famously argued for what he called what is called phonocentrism, or it's this idea that speech has a primary relationship to meaning that writing itself doesn't have like writing is a bastardized form of meaning it's not the pure meaning because in speech the intention of the thinker is in perfect relationship to the world of meaning and can articulate it in speech no no mix-up of meaning or anything now of course you want to go Freudian slip or something like but Rousseau's not thinking like that but what Derrida does is he he brings in the Saussurian logic of the differential nature of language. And he's going, dude, I don't care. Like you, you think writing is about difference or mediation over here. And there's like this kind of pure immediacy to speech. But in fact, speech is completely mediated by difference in the way that you say writing is. And therefore there is no pure identity or pure meaning at work in speech. Speech itself is structured by difference and can never be purely identical to itself, right? So if we zoom out and stop worrying about speech and writing for a second, just think about identity and difference, Derrida is going to say, well, when you pull at the strings of identity, what you find is just difference and that it all breaks down into this differential play, difference, which is differing and deferring, right? Meaning always differs from itself and is always deferred onto some other term. But here's the Hegelian maneuver that Zizek points out. Yes, Derrida, you're right. And guess what? That differing within identity, that's identity itself. Identity is the identity of identity and difference. Zizek is saying like, Derrida, like Hegel already had this shit. You just don't go the step further and do this retroactive conversion. Identity is its own descent into difference and mediation and non-immediacy and that is precisely what makes identity identity he he just wraps it back around and he'll do this time and time again throughout for they know not what they do that he'll show like some sort of critique i mean he really focuses on derrida a lot here but he he's trying to show like these thinkers that think they're like, like because the idea is like derrida would say something like oh well no, really, uh, Hegel's this metaphysician of identity because all differences is collapsed into the pure identity of absolute idea or absolute knowing or whatever. But what Zizek's trying to do is go, no, it's not a pure identity. Even like, oh, it has all these differences, but they're all mediated or sublated within the pure identity. It's that for Hegel, there is no pure identity in this sense that there was for Plato. Like, I mean, he goes out of his way to say Hegel's an anti-Platonist, right? Because even for Hegel, even though he's going to talk about the whole, the point of the Hegelian system is all of this negativity, all of this difference, right? That these, I I want to talk like Sartre here, but all of these pools of nothingness are actually these holes within the system that are part of the system by not being fully realized within the system. And this is where you get this difference of of like, things don't just break down into pure chaotic difference. It's that this breakdown of difference is an essential component of what gives a thing its overarching identity in the long run. And this is this Hegelian reversal or conversion. I mean, even Catherine Malibu, I don't know if you know this story, but she wrote this great book um, on Hegel. What is it called? The future of Hegel and plasticity, right? Something like that. She knew that Derrida, who was her teacher, got Hegel totally wrong. 
And at the very beginning, she has a little tribute to Derrida, but it says, and you never saw this coming, did you? And the point is, like, Derrida, even through Catherine Malibu, had this realization, like, I totally fucking got Hegel wrong. And, I mean, and nobody points this out more so than Slavoj does. But this, to me, is like his, his long-lasting contribution is going to be that he was a serious philosopher doing serious ontology within Hegelianism. And that's what everybody fails to understand. That's the misunderstanding is he's a comic or he's, you know, he's like a man of letters in some way or a public intellectual. But what he's not is a towering philosopher on this level with Kant and Hegel. And somebody can go, well, well, the difference is he's not as original as Hegel or Kant. And I want to go, yeah, but there's a lot of original philosophers. But what matters to me more is that somebody is completely original in their philosophy or that the philosophy itself that they're working out, even if it's totally inspired by somebody else, is better than the really original. Like, okay, Leibniz is about as original in his metaphysics as you're going to get. And I think it's bullshit. I'm sorry. Like, I don't really buy anything in the monadology, right? And I can give him this credit, like it's staggeringly original, but I think it's bullshit. And so my thing is with all of the centuries of misunderstanding of Hegel, I think you can make this case like Slavoj is so original simply because he finally fucking read Hegel remotely right. And and that's going to be the, the thing. But that's why I think the biggest misunderstanding of him is that he's not even a serious philosopher. When you're in town here, do yeah. you ever get approached by local fans or something like that? What do you mean by fans? Something? People hate me pretty much here. I'm not kidding. So I think here, here's the trick with the murder of the thing, right? The murder of the thing is the fact that the thing itself becomes more present in its word than it is in its concrete reality. And the somebody could go, well, how the fuck is something more present in its word? How does the word get more of its reality than its actual brute physical reality have? And what it is, I mean, think about, well, let's go, but we're talking about Derrida with tree, right? Think about the signifier tree. If all you do is take an immediate sense experience of a tree as the whole of the tree, you get way more of the presence or the ontological reality of the tree in the word. If you have the concept of tree and you have that word to pin all that meaning on, you're going to learn, okay, well, this, this tree actually, its development goes like this, and then it's different from these other trees because of this reason, and then this tree's seeds work like this, and it needs this type of soil. None of that shit is present in just a basic sense experience of a tree. What I'm trying to say is that the signifier contains this wealth of knowledge about a tree that you can't get from sense experience, right? I mean, all of the scientific knowledge, all of the various ways poets have drawn inspiration from trees, all of that's within the word tree. It's not in any, it's not this immediate sense experience of, in the, of the tree. And so in that sense, the tree is more present in the word than it is in its physical reality. And that's what murders the thing. Or it can at least be organized by the word. Totally. And that's the thing, right? Like, this is this great Hegelian reversal of how we think about the abstract and the concrete. Traditionally, we think the concrete experience, just looking at a tree, is the most immediate experience we can have, right? And in that sense, like, that's the true thing, right? But it doesn't work that way. The point is, the concrete experience is actually the one that's the most mediated. Which is to say, the more you know about a tree, the more you're actually experiencing it. And it's through this mediation of knowledge and conceptualization, based on the word, the signifier, right? That this fullness of the tree, it can even begin to be experienced by you, right? And so, again, there's different ways. People will say, well, the immediacy is in the abstract. Well, no, the immediacy is in the concrete, right? But to get it right, the concrete is the most mediated. And that's this reverse. Like the abstract is immediate because you're trying to think some pure thing, right? But again, that reverses what is typically thought. Like well, the immediate is the concrete, the mediated is the abstract. But Hegel's going, no, like the more you mediate a thing, the more you understand about it, the more concrete the thing gets. That's the thing. Mediation for him is fleshing the thing out, right? But you can only do this in language. You can only do this in this abstract medium 
And there we're getting into the dialectics of it. And so many philosophers have gone wrong in how they think about this relationship between immediacy and mediation and abstract concrete. We're sorry. All of our representatives are still assisting other customers. Please remain on the line as we value your call. So I'm going to have to start winding down. I got to get up kind of yeah. early tomorrow. No, no, of course, but, of course, okay, of course. So here's the thing. This is Zizek and So On podcast. It wouldn't be right if we didn't tell you, if, if these little anecdotes belong anywhere, it belongs on your podcast. And so I, I just want to tell the story of us meeting Slavoj at this conference, right? Okay, so one of the few times Dave and I have actually gotten to hang out in person was at the 2018 International Zizek Conference, which was held in a Athens, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so this was a big deal for us. Uh, we, we both went, both presented papers. And of course, we're not going to lie, like we were in straight up fanboy mode. And uh, yeah, go ahead. It was surreal, you know, like when he showed up, he was flanked by people like he was a fucking rapper, you know, he like had he had like six dudes with them who were all like hooked to everything he was saying. And he was talking. Yeah, Russ was there. There. And yeah, and it's the way he always is, like the way he is on stage. It's the way he always is when he's in the mode, he's in the mode microphone going or not, you know, and so it was pretty cool to be there. But so the point, one of the big things, I mean, there's a couple of really cool things that came of it. We got to ask him a really cool question. Uh, I filmed Mikey asking it. We'd been wanting to ask him for a yeah, long the time. Cut the balls video. Yeah, we wanted to know his opinion of this, this parody video, you know, this dance song and dance cut the balls that someone made of him, you know, it's a popular parody video. And it's like, so what did he think of it? That was cool. But the real momentous thing was that when Mikey's essay was selected as the best graduate essay, Dr. Gabbard, who was like the chair of my thesis committee came up and asked me, where, where, where does he go to school? Or like, where, where did he go to school? Where is he, where's his grad school or whatever, you know? And I was like, oh no, he did, he did, he, did, he's a GED, you know? And he's just like, what? They were like moved by that. Zizek sitting there, Gabriel like announces. He's like choking up, tearing up, you know, when he's talking about how Mikey's not been able to go to school or anything like that. Mikey's not been able to do what he wants to do, which is, you know, research and teach. You know? Yeah, that's the winner. The, the recipient got to go to breakfast with Zizek. There, there were some jewels that Slavoj said to us that it, I just have to share them. So, I mean, on the one... So when I when I won the award, they asked me to give a little speech and I kind of I did a shorter version of how I got into philosophy and everything and I'm not able to go to school or whatever. But I ended by saying something like, you know, I just I've had a passion for philosophy since I was 21. And somehow, some way that passion has led me to be here with you guys with Slavoj Zizek and uh, Slavoj turns and goes, yes, where your passion will die. <laughs> <laughs> like i'm like i'm i'm gonna kill your philosophy i'm so bad at it like just, see that self-deprecating oh you think you love philosophy wait till you get a load of me <laughs> what one of those little jewels was uh i had a copy of sublime object of ideology that i was going to get signed you know you know he signed sublime object and then i was like will you give uh this copy of empire you know will you sign it and give it like a one one line critique and so he wrote multitude is fascist <laughs> it was badass i was like god damn that is that's the fucking yeah there we go so yeah you know, and dave mentioned this book that i've been working on for five years it's it, it's my main book it, i mean no matter what i go on to do after this thing is complete i mean it, it it's always going to be the most important book to me that i i write i mean i i have trouble imagining anyone will mean more to me than this one but i i got tasked to write it by slavoy in a way it, well it's weird i'm not going to give the like what the book is or what it's about away but i'll say this when i was sitting there talking to him i was like look i see this thing that you haven't discussed really and here's the idea i have for it 
And he listened to it and he goes, go, go write this book. Go, go make that, go, go write the book. And so for five years, I've been following this symbolic mandate that Slavoj <laughs> gave me. It's like, I'll, I'll go through subjective destitution once I've fulfilled my duty and completed the book. But yeah, so it, it, is, it is a cool thing. Because at the time, I mean, I just, it was an idea. I was like, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't thought of this or somebody hasn't done something with that. And he's like, no, it's your job. Go do it. And so like, all right, man, it'll be funny. Like when the day comes that I can email him and say, well, I finished the fucking thing. Now you owe it to me to read this. This is all your fucking fault. You know, <laughs> but uh, so the funny thing, uh, this may be my favorite thing. So when I was standing there talking to him, I was like, all right, Slavoj, you got to tell me what's your favorite thing about visiting America? And he was like, my favorite thing <laughs> about visiting America. He goes, oh, I know. He goes, my favorite thing is that I can go to gas station and buy a can of spam. Great meal for under three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the thing, like I laughed it off and I'm like, is Slavoy fucking with me? Like, is that's his favorite thing? Like, I'm like sitting there going, it has to be like some sort of joke. Fast forward to all these years later, and now I'm friends with Todd and I'm talking to Todd on the phone. I go, hey, okay, I gotta tell you something that Slavoy said to me when I met him. And he's like, okay. I'm like, I really I'm like, I want to know if Slavoy was fucking with me or if this is true. He goes, okay, let me hear it. So I tell him about the spam thing. He goes, and Todd's like, he's not fucking with you. He goes, I ma he makes me pull over to these gas stations and he gets a can of spam and a thing of Ben and Jerry's. And every time I'm like, Slavoj, let me take you out for a good meal. Like, let me, I, there's lots of nice restaurants. And he's like, no, spam and Ben and Jerry's. Take me back to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> so Todd confirmed no, he wasn't fucking with me. Spam's his favorite thing about being in America. Spam in the place where I live. Ham and boy. Think about nutrition, wonder what's inside it. Oh, Spam boy. in my lunchbox at work. It's the best. Really makes a darn good sandwich any way you slice it at all. If you're running low, go to the store. Carry some money Thank you. 